Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, where we've just started a series on the book of Hebrews that we've entitled Stand Strong. We live in a day where people are fascinated by and even obsessed with supernatural beings. There's seemingly an endless list of TV shows and movies that involve angels, demons, and spirits, all of which leads people to speculate about what are angels like. And then you have added to that the confusion that groups like the Jehovah's Witness and Mormons contribute to the subject in the sense that they, they, the Mormons, for example, believe that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. The Jehovah's Witness believe that Jesus is the archangel Michael. The Catholic Church encourages people to pray to the archangel Michael, and all of this really speaks to the importance of knowing what the Bible says about angels, what it says about Jesus. Today, as we come to Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 14 in this series that we've entitled Stand Strong, because honestly, when you and I know about Jesus, it does something to us. The more you and I know about him, the more we love him, the more we're going to become like him. How could you become like him if you didn't know about him? But the more you and I behold him, the more we're going to see him do in our life. And in fact, I think last week was a perfect example. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So when we're exalting Jesus in the book of Hebrews, you can be sure there are going to be a lot of people who are going to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And along the way, our faith is going to be uh, strengthened because we know whom we have believed in. And the more we know about him, the more we understand how absolutely wonderful and majestic and powerful and awesome he is, and it makes it easy then to begin to believe him to do those impossible things in our life or in the lives of others that we're going to him, asking him to work. He does work, and he delights to work. So as we get ready to look at Hebrews chapter 1, I want to just give you a a few things about angels. The Bible says a lot about angels. In the Old Testament, there are 108 references to angels. In the New Testament, there are 165 references to angels. The Bible doesn't tell us how many angels there are. We do know that angels do not procreate. They do not produce baby angels. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 calls them an innumerable company of beings. In Revelation chapter 12, we find that a third of the angelic host rebelled against God, led by an angel by the name of Lucifer or Satan. So we assume there are billions of angelic beings. You say, what are angels like? Let me give you just three categories in describing them. First of all, they are persons. 
That is to say, they are not supernatural robots. They have a personality. What makes a personality? It's when somebody has intellect, emotion, and will. Angels have intellect. They can think. They can process things intellectually. Lucifer, or Satan in his original state, was full of wisdom. When the women come to the tomb in Matthew chapter 28, the angel says, I know who you are looking for. The angel's able to think. They have emotions. Angels can rejoice. The Bible says there's more rejoicing in heaven among the angels over one sinner who repents. Every time a sinner repents, the angels rejoice. The angels can sing for joy. They did at creation. It's interesting we have no record of them singing after the fall of man. It's as if sin took away their song in some sense. We know that angels can express the emotion of hatred or rebellion toward God, toward his plan, toward his people. They also have a will. They can decide to follow God or decide not to as they did in the rebellion. They can choose. So they're persons. They're also spirits. They are not flesh and blood, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, they have a spiritual body or a heavenly body. We do know this. We know they can appear in human form. And when they do, often it's for the purpose of ministering to people or encouraging people. For example, the, the writer of Hebrews says this, chapter 13, verse 2, do not forget to entertain strangers... For by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. So the fact that the writer of Hebrews mentions that tells us that this is a common experience in the life of the Christian. You have probably interacted with angels and maybe didn't even realize it. I know this when we were building where the Springs is, that used to be our campus. When we were building that larger auditorium, it was in 1994 and, and we were behind schedule trying to get it done and there was a, um, there were storms coming in, we we're trying to finish the sheetrock and a guy walked off the highway and he asked if, if he could help. It was during the construction boom in Branson, so there was a lot of construction uh, going on in the area, hard to get people. And they said, well, do you know anything about Sheerock? He said, I do. And so they said, well, sure, you can help. They pulled off. They were getting ready to leave at the end of the day. He said, I'll just stay and do a little work, and then I'll, I'll leave after that. So he stays. When they come back in the morning, all of the sheetrock is finished. So even the, the, the contractor and the people said, that had to be an angel. He, they never paid him. He, never, he finished all of his sheetrock. And if you knew the part that he finished, you'd be like, how in the world does that happen? So an angel just says, sheetrock, sheetrock. I mean, it would <laughs> really funny to be there, right? So you never know. You, you, angels can show up. Angels, you may not know what they are, but they can minister to you or maybe hang your sheetrock. Who knows? They're spirits, but that doesn't mean that they are unlimited in their ability to appear to people. So in other words, 
they can't be everywhere all at once. God is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere all at once. Angels can only be at one place at one time. Angels have ranks. In other words, there's level, levels of authority. And we see that in Scripture. So when you're reading in the New Testament and you, you see Paul talking, whether it's in Colossians or whether it's in uh, Colossians 1, Ephesians chapter 6, it will mention uh, rankings of angels. There are thrones, which is a ranking, powers, which is a ranking, authorities, which is a ranking, um, rulers in high places, which is a ranking. You say, what does that mean? We don't really understand. I do know in heaven we'll know, but suffice it to say that there, there's levels of authority, and you even see that in fallen angels. For example, in Daniel chapter 10, uh, an angel comes to Daniel and he says, I was delayed, you were fasting, I was sent right away, but the prince of Persia detained me for 21 days. Which tells you that there are and demonic beings, fallen angels, that are over geographic areas. Now, I don't think it's for us to go around and try to figure all of that out, but I do think it is for us to understand the reality of that fact. There are also categories or classifications of angels. There are seraphim who have six wings, we read about them in Isaiah chapter 6. They're around the throne. They're really the guardians of the throne of God and the presence of God. Similar to them, but different, are the cherubim. And the cherubim are four-faced beings that have uh, wings and eyes cover their body. And you say, well, that's really freaky. What's that, what's that all about? What you have is you have somebody who is human who is trying to describe another world, and you'd say, well, it was like this or it was like that. So they're, they're fearsome, incredible beings. There are archangels, really only one archangel that is in the Bible. That does not mean there aren't others, but Michael is the only archangel mentioned in the Bible. So they are persons. They are spirits. They are very, very powerful. In fact, we read in Revelation that four angels will hold back all the winds on the earth. How does that happen? And it's not that God says, oh, hey, I'm going to hold the wind back. No, it's the angels have that power. The, the sheer power it would take to do that is, is incredible. We find that one angel in 2 Kings chapter 19 killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. The death angel came down into Egypt and killed all of the firstborn. They're very, very powerful. And yet we know this, that someday, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 3, you and I rule angels. We will actually be above the angels. There's one other thing, I think, as we come to Hebrews chapter 1 that's important for us to understand is the Jewish people had a very, very high regard for angels, they believed that angels were mediators between God and men, that they worked out God's will. They also believed that angels acted as a senate or as a 
legislative council for God, that when God was going to do something, that he would involve the angels. And you see that in 1 Kings chapter 22, and it gives us a picture of that. You also see it in the book of Job chapter 1, that the angels come to present themselves, and God interacts with them and talks with them, and out of that, his will is carried out on earth. They also believed, the Jewish people did, that angels affected or actually governed the seasons and that angels are over the seasons and over the weather patterns and over the things that happen. Finally, they believed that the old covenant was brought to them on Mount Sinai by angels. And that's affirmed. You see it in Acts chapter 7 and verse 53. Stephen in his defense says, you who have received the law that was put in effect through angels. Paul echoes that in Galatians 3 and verse 19. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. And because of all of that, the, the Jewish people had this very, very high regard for angels. And so what the writer of Hebrews wants to do is this whole point is to show the superiority of Jesus. So since Jesus is spiritual, since he is a spiritual being, what he's doing is he's going to say, listen, I know you have a high respect for angels, but Jesus is like so much more superior to angels than you can imagine. So the whole point is Jesus is superior to everything. Everything in Judaism, everything in life, he is above all, he's over all. Everything is by him, for him, to him, through him. I mean, it's all his. And so the writer is trying to explain to him, listen, okay, we're going to start with angels, and Jesus is way better than the angels. And he gives five ways in which he's superior. Number one, Jesus has a superior name. Look at it, verse four. So he, that's Jesus, became as much superior to the angels. That's really the theme of chapter one. Jesus is superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Jesus is superior to angels because he has a superior name. You say, does that mean the name Jesus is better than the name Michael or Gabriel? No, that's not the name we're talking about. Look at it in verse five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? That's the name. Which angel did God ever say, you're my son? None of them. Today I've become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. The word angel means messenger. It means servant. And Jesus is not a servant, he's a son. He's not just a messenger, he's not hired help, he's a son. And as Christians, we in scripture are called collectively the sons of God, and angels might collectively be called the sons of God, but no one angel has been called God's son. And the Old Testament predicted there would be a son. And so son is more than a, a name. It's a position. It's a sign of relationship. Look at it in verse 5. It says, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. So Jesus is superior because he has a superior name. 
Second, notice he has a superior rank. Look at it in verse six. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So here's Jesus and the angels worship him. And if they worship him, he must be greater than they are. Now, I want to back up just for a moment. I want to talk about firstborn. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world. See, some people, and especially um, religious groups who have either changed what the Bible says or tried to create a doctrine that the Bible does not talk about, would use this, and they would say, the, the issue really between true religion and false religion all over the world, doesn't matter what religion you're talking about, but there are some religions that try to align themselves with Christianity, but they're not truly Christian, and the litmus test is, what do they do with Jesus? And if they make Jesus anything less than the co-eternal, co-existent, co-equal Son of God, they're a false religion. They're not a truly Christian religion. So what a lot of groups will do is they'll say, when God brings his firstborn, and they'll say, aha, see, firstborn, he was created. Firstborn means he was born. Firstborn means he had a beginning into the world. But the word firstborn there, in the Greek, it's the word protokos, and it's not a it's not a word of time, it's really a word of position or a word of rank. For example, we could say this way, we could put it this way, Debbie and I have three kids. David is our firstborn. That means he was the one that was born first. But in Greek and Jewish culture, what happened is the firstborn had more to do with rank than it did with chronology. In fact, in the Roman world, you could have kids of your own, and if you didn't think they were cutting the mustard in, in terms of really honoring the family name, you'd go find somebody, and you would adopt them, and you'd make them your firstborn. In, in Judaism, you see something similar. You've got Isaac. He has two sons. Esau is born first. Therefore, you would think he's the firstborn, but Jacob, the second son, is treated as the firstborn, he gets the, he gets the birthright, he gets the blessing, he has the rank, he, he has priority over Esau. In the Bible, God calls Israel the firstborn among the nations. Does that mean they were the first nation? No, we know there were other nations before Israel. It means they rank first in God's sight. So it's a, it's a, a term of rank. It's a term of position. It doesn't have to do, it's not a term of origin. It's a term of position. Now go back and look at the whole verse again. Let all God's angels worship him. Here's what you have to know. Angels don't worship other angels. So, and if any angel tells you to worship them, or something other than God, that angel, no matter how beautiful they are, is a demon. Angels, are a godly angel, a good angel, 
would tell you only to worship God. You say, how do you know? Well, Revelation chapter 22, John gets this fantastic vision, and he is so overwhelmed by it, and the angel who's bringing it to him, that he falls down to worship the angel. Watch this. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I'd heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you. And with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book, worship God. So if angels worship Jesus, what's that tell you? Jesus is God. Number three, he not only has a superior rank, but he has a superior nature. Verse seven, look at it. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels wins, his servants, flames of fire. The word there, makes, in the original, means to create. He creates angels. Jesus is the creative person in the Godhead. A lot of times people think, well, the Father created. No, the Father willed it. The Son did it. So Jesus is the one who in the beginning, when it says in the beginning was uh, God spoke and, you know, everything was created. That's Jesus. In John chapter one, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And later we find out the word is Jesus. It says in verse three, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then we read this. Paul writes in Colossians chapter one and verse 16, all things were created by him, talking of Jesus, and for him. So if Christ created the angels, he has to be greater than the angels. Are you with me? All of this is very, very important because, you know, see, we have to understand Satan is a fallen angel. He was created. So, you know, he's no match for God. He's no match for anything God wants to do. So you don't have to worry about him. It's not like two equals, equals going at it. It's like, it's like a little itty bitty subordinate and a big giant mess of God. God is over everything. He makes the angels. It says he makes them wind. What are we talking about there? They're invisible. They're fast. They're moving. I also think that, that uh, there is angelic beings that are attached to manifestations of God's presence that involve wind. So you come on Sinai, and there are angels as God comes down on the mountain to deliver the law to Moses. And, and, and then you get to Pentecost, and there's a rushing mighty wind. I think there's angelic activity in that. And then it also says he makes them flames of fire. And so again, at Pentecost, there's this fire, and at Sinai, there's this fire. And, and I'm suggesting to you that in some sense, it, it indicates angelic activity. So that's the nature of angels. But notice the nature of Jesus. Look at it in verse 8. But about the Son, he says, this is God the Father, says about the Son, your throne, O God. So if God the Father calls Jesus God, guess what? He's God, right? This is really, really important. He's not a lesser God. He's not a created God. He is God, very God, and God the Father calls him God. Your throne, O God, will last forever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. So not only is the difference between Jesus and angels that Jesus is God, but God the Father calls him God. 
and Jesus himself. Be very clear on this, because again, people will try to tie you in knots who don't believe the Bible or accept the authority of Scripture, and they'll try to tell you, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. That is not true. We don't have time to look at all the scriptures, but in John chapter 5 and verse 18, Jesus claimed deity. In John chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus claimed deity. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, he claimed deity. And they were going to stone him. They were going to throw rocks at him. And he hid from them. Jesus was very clear that he was God, and there are a host of New Testament scriptures that reaffirm that. Among them, Romans chapter 9 and verse 5, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, 1 John chapter 5. You say, why are you giving us all these scriptures? Because you can go back, you can listen to the message, you can write them down, you can look them up, that your faith might be encouraged that Jesus is God, very God, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent with the Father. This is important. And I belabor that because you need to know it, and you need to know it's reaffirmed in Scripture. Verse 8, we read this, but about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So here he is. Christ not only does righteous things, but he does righteous things because he loves righteousness. And would you notice, he hates wickedness. Wherever he sees it, he abhors it because of what it does to people and how it mars God's creation, how it brings sorrow and heartbreak to people. You go on and you notice this, it talks about him being anointed. Your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. It's interesting, the anointing, the anointed one, that's Jesus. In Hebrew, anointed one is Messiah. When we say Jesus, Messiah, we're saying Jesus, the anointed one. In Greek, it's Christ, Christos. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus, the anointed one, which again is a reference to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 9. So he's superior because of his name. He's superior because of his rank. He's superior because of his nature. Number four, he's superior because of his eternality. The Holy Spirit uses Psalm 102 to, he quotes it here in verse 10. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now I want you to think about this. In order to create in the beginning, you have to be there before the beginning, okay? If you create in the beginning, it's because you were there before there was a beginning. He created in the beginning God. He was there at the beginning. He was there before the beginning. All of that, again, speaks to the eternality of Jesus. He is without beginning and he is without end. That's what Alpha and Omega, I'm the Alpha and Omega, I'm the beginning and the end. He is the beginning and the end and everything in between. He created time, which means he exists outside of time, which is how he can see the beginning and the end simultaneously. He can tell the future effortlessly because he exists outside of time. And it's like, this is the beginning of time, this is the end of time, and we're right here. He can see exactly where you're at, where we are at, where, where people are at, where the earth is at. And so he can predict the future because he can see it clearly. 
Now watch this in verse 10. It says, he also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. We talked about that last week, Revelation 20:11. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and earth and sky fled from his presence. What are we talking about there? The uncreation in a second of the universe, of the heavens and the earth, gone. Not to be renovated, but to be removed and replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. It says that in Psalm 102. It says it in Isaiah. It's repeated over and over again. Jesus created the earth. He created the universe, both known and unknown. And someday he'll say, he'll let go of it and it'll be gone. Verse 12, look at this. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they'll be changed, but you remain the same. And your years never end. when, When all of time is over, he's still there. He's eternal. And not only is he there, but this is what is so fantastic. He is the same. He never changes. Theologians call it the immutability of God. He is not ever going to change, which is a wonderful thing. We change. We change our mind. We change our interests. We change based on this or that. He never changes. In fact, Hebrews is going to tell us this in chapter 13. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, which is a really wonderful thing, because if you want to know what Jesus wants to do today, just look at what he did in the Gospels and say, if that's what he did in the Gospels, that's what he wants to do today. And Jesus said, greater things than I did will you do because I go to the Father. I mean, this is great news. We don't have to guess if Jesus wants to heal. He he did it all the time in the Gospels. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. We don't have to guess if Jesus loves people. He loved people in the Gospels. He loved the outcasts. He was the friend of sinners. Is he the friend of sinners today? Yes. Is he the savior of the world? Yes. His heart remains the same. And the universe may change, but Jesus will never change because he is the eternal God. He will remain. It's awesome. Number five, one more thing. Jesus has a superior authority. He's greater than the angels because his authority is greater than theirs. Look at it, verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Did he ever say that to an angel? And the answer is no, he did not. In fact, what's interesting is when you read about What happens, you never in heaven ever see the angels sitting down. Angels don't sit down. But to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He said that to the Son. Someday everything will be under the feet of Jesus. The book of heaven, or the book of Revelation talks about heaven, how In a moment, it will be declared in heaven, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's a beautiful thought. 
Maybe a more well-known scripture is Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the place of highest honor and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His name, everybody will bow, every knee and every tongue, and he'll be exalted. His work, Jesus finished his work, and he sat down. And the writer of Hebrews is going to do much with that thought later in the book. But watch what happens with angels, verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? The role of angels is forever to serve those who will inherit salvation. We're a little lower than the angels. Psalm 8 and verse 5 says, Today created man lower than the angels, but someday we'll be over the angels. We'll rule angels in heaven, 1 Corinthians 6. But angels, what do they do? They serve those who will inherit salvation. You, you may not be aware of it. You may not have seen it. Most of their service to us is invisible but they are serving you nonetheless. You say, how? Well, they're protecting, obviously, watching over you, directing you. Think of this. Jesus said, be careful that you don't offend one of these, my little ones. This is Matthew chapter 18. I think it's in verse 10 that he makes the statement. And we're talking about little ones, we're not talking about little kids. Because he's saying, unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about believers. He says, be careful you don't offend them, because I tell you, their angels in heaven are constantly beholding the face of the Father. So your guardian angel isn't watching you. He's watching God. So God is like, hey, uh, John's about to get himself in big trouble. You better get down there and keep him out of it. You know, I mean, it's that kind of thing. Like, you know, he's, he's, there he goes. He's climbed on his spider again, um, you know. Ride with him, please. So that kind of thing. Do you know what I'm saying? So they're watching. They're serving. But they're also encouraging. I love what David Martin Lloyd-Jones says. This is so cool. Because we are Christians, the angels of God are at our service. They are ministering spirits sent forth by God to serve and to minister to you and to me, though we are unconscious of this. They're exercising this ministry. So most of the time, we're not even aware of what they're doing. We are surrounded by them. I don't know if you've ever thought of that, but you're surrounded by them. It's one of the reasons you don't need to be afraid. Not only is God watching over you, but a part of his care for you is he surrounds believers with angelic beings. So we can rest in that. You may not see them. You don't have to see them to know what's happening. They are unseen, but they are there. And they minister to us because we belong to Christ. We sadly neglect and forget the service of angels. But if you ever feel lonely and bereft and feel that you don't know what to do nor where to turn, remind yourself that your heavenly Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, has sent angels to minister to you as he did to him in the hours of his greatest crises and his greatest agony. When was that? 
Well, there's two times it's talking about the Garden of Gethsemane. But remember, angels came and attended him. They strengthened him. He was sweating drops of blood. He was agonizing. And in that moment, they came and strengthened him in such a way that he was able to withstand the scourging, the flogging, and carry that cross piece and hang on the cross and communicate to people for six hours and surrender spirit, all because angels strengthened him. Do you realize that it says in Mark's gospel, when he was out in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, and it says, and by the wild animals. The wild animals were out there, he was out there with them. But angels came and attended to him. Angels were encouraging him. Angels were strengthening him. So I don't know, you could be discouraged and angels would come and strengthen you. You might not know what to do and angels could come and, and work in a, at God's direction. Does the Holy Spirit speak to us? Certainly. But we can just know that as the Holy Spirit is working, a part of the way he's working is through angelic beings he sends to help us. Say, okay, John, so I, I get this. Jesus is greater. Angels are less. Very interesting. What's the upshot? Why is the writer of Hebrews telling me this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, Hebrews 2, verse 1. This is why all this is so important. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. What are we talking about? The gospel. So that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. What are we talking about there? He's talking about when the first covenant came to Moses on Mount Sinai, angels brought it. And that covenant was binding. And notice it says every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. So remember a guy's out picking up sticks on the Sabbath day? And they catch him, and God said, uh-uh, we don't do work on the Sabbath day. And they bring him before the Lord, and they say, what should we do? And the law said, if you do that, you die. So that seems really harsh. Why would God do that? Listen, anytime you and I, what's a physical reality in the Old Testament is a spiritual reality in the New. Anytime you break the Sabbath, it, it introduces death into your life. You were designed to work six days and seven. And when you violate that, there's a law of diminishing returns. It introduces death. Remember the guy, he used the name of the Lord in vain and they heard him and they're like, what do we do? And God said, stone him. I mean, the law was very, very serious is the point here. You say, well, why would they stone somebody for cussing? Because anytime you and I take the Lord's name in vain. This is why I, I, I would just tell you, whether you do it or you're willingly engaging in media that does it, you're introducing death into your situation. There is power in the name of the Lord. And when you hear people saying, Jesus Christ is a swear word or GD, I'm just telling you, there is there's death in that. I'm trying to, I'm just saying it's, it's, it's true. And so what he's saying is if that covenant was that big a deal, I mean, angels, then 
What should we think about the new covenant? Look at it, verse 3. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? I mean, if under the old covenant, there was a law and people were punished for something that just angels brought, but now we have a new covenant that was brought to us, how? With the blood of Jesus. God himself comes down to earth. God dies on a cross for you and I. And if we reject that, if we treat that as casual, if we treat that as not being a big deal, he's saying, how shall we escape if we ignore this great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. All that to say this, I think people are way too casual in their response to whether they receive the gospel or, or the importance of the gospel. Like, oh, you know, I, I don't think I want to do that today. I think I'll think about it later. No, 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 no. This is really, really important. This is really, really huge. This really, really matters. And, and, and it demands more than a casual response. It is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. The most there is no decision you will ever make more important than are you going to receive Jesus as your Savior or not? And it demands way more than a, well, I don't know. I might do it tomorrow. I might do it next week. No, 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 no. It's, it is so important. It demands your full attention. It demands you think about this and think about it thoroughly. It demands that you say, you know what? It's a big deal. And the Bible doesn't counsel waiting. You never find in the Bible, hey, why don't you take time to think about it? And then, you know, when you feel ready, you ought to. The Bible never says that. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed hour. Why? Because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. What you do with Jesus or don't do with him, will determine your eternity. When somebody is super casual because they didn't realize how important it is, listen, there's nothing more important in your life. There's no appointment. There's no, there's no person. There's no anything more important than the decision of what you're going to do with Jesus. And then you go back to verse 1 and we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Do you know what? Some of you are here today, and what's happened is you haven't been paying attention to the Bible. You gave your heart to Jesus, but, but you've been lackadaisical in your response to serving him. And it just starts gradually, and then you make a decision and make here and a decision there, and pretty soon you find yourself like living away from God and knowing that you're away from God. And he's saying, that's a very serious situation to be in. Because the fact of the matter is, you and I are either growing closer to God or we're growing away from God, but nobody stays stationary. You're either moving towards him and becoming more like him and growing in your love for him, or your heart is getting colder and you're gradually drifting. It's a good word, drifting away from him. Because 
other things took priority in your life. And now you find some of you today, you find yourself, if you and I were talking personally, you'd say, you know, I'm not really serving God. I'm not really living on fire for God, but God loves you so much. He brought you here today to hear this message that you might understand just how important Jesus is, how powerful he is, and how important this message of salvation is. And some of you have not yet committed your life to, to him, and it's not because you've never heard it before. You've heard it a whole bunch of times. And you keep thinking you're going to do it tomorrow, but you don't. And one of these days will be your last day. And I don't say it for effect, I say it for truth. You don't know which day that is. It could be today. But knowing Jesus is the most important thing. And opening your heart to him is the most important decision you will ever make. And if you don't do that, here's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10. It's a really, it's, it's strong language. That if you don't receive Christ, there's no other sacrifice for sin. There's nothing left. There's nothing that will cover your sin. And that's the issue when you stand on the edge of eternity. And then he adds this. It's a fearful thing. I think it's in verse 27. To fall into the hands of a living God. It's a fearful thing. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, this is so important. Make a decision today. Do it now. If you're drifting away, come back now. 